I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. You know, a lot of times in conversations surrounding faith and science, people might be coming from two different perspectives. There's the person of faith, who maybe has some questions concerning science, but isn't seeking to find answers because they either don't care or they don't know where to look. Then there's perhaps the person of science, who might have questions concerning faith, but also might chalk up faith to this superstitious collection of beliefs that's not really worth digging into. That's, of course, majorly stereotyping both sides. There's a lot of nuance that's usually involved in each individual person who has questions concerning science or faith. But the big thing here is that a lot of times dialogue doesn't actually occur or big questions go unanswered for whatever reason. Dr. Todd Werner is the editor of the Word on Fire Institute's Evangelization and Culture Journal, and he's also a medical doctor. And so we sat down and had a a long-ranging conversation about how we can tackle difficult topics, especially with people who are skeptics or non-believers. How can we get to the heart of a particular issue, especially if somebody has a hang-up of faith because of scientific understanding, or or somebody has a hang-up with faith because the science doesn't seem to back up this particular, say, miraculous claim? How do we even begin to have that dialogue? Why is it worth having that conversation? And then on an even bigger scale, what can occur when true authentic discussion and dialogue takes place in a fruitful, dare I even say, life-giving kind of way? In this entire series on faith and science, I keep reverting to this one point that Dr. Baglow made earlier in our season, that faith tries to answer why and science tries to answer how. And maybe... In attempting to answer the how and the why, an individual can come to a place of fully understanding the truth. That only happens through dialogue. And we can dig into the nitty-gritty of particular scientific pursuits. We can talk about creation. We can talk about bioethics. We can talk about the environment. We can talk about scientific exploration in space. We We can dig into the what's and the why's and the how's. But we also have to dig into the actual elements of having conversation around the what's and the why's and the how's. How do we begin the dialogue in the first place? How does the conversation take place? What happens in those moments of engaging dialogue? That's what today's conversation is all about. I hope that you go over to AveMariaPress.com whenever you get the chance and find all of the other great content that we've created, articles, videos, podcasts, Facebook, social media exclusives, and, and live conversations happening there. A great plethora of resources have been created just for you to be able to really dive into this topic. And I think a lot of it is is readily accessible to anybody who has questions concerning faith and science. Students, people who've maybe resisted faith, people who think that they know it all, people who know that they know nothing. This is very much an entry-level approach to the dialogues and the discussions of faith and science that need to happen. But in being very entry-level, we really dig into this topic, I think, with great depth and really unpacking the minds of these experts. So I really do hope you click on over to AveMariaPress.com. The link is down in the show notes, and you can find all of these great conversations and all of this excellent content as part of our entire Ave Explores Faith and Science series. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Todd Werner from Word on Fire about how to have conversations about tough stuff with faith and science. 
Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining us on Ave Explorers. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So I've long been a fan, follow you on Twitter, have seen many of the things that you've written. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are. My favorite way to phrase this is if I bumped into you in an elevator and we had a couple minutes together, what would I learn about the guy I'm talking to? Well, you. thanks for asking. You know, I'm a native largely to the upper Midwest, living in Minnesota. Grew up Lutheran, was a Catholic convert after 14 years of wrestling with God uh, and came into the church in 2010. And I was trained as a physician. I'm an internal medicine doctor and have been practicing with residency and then outside of residency for about 20, 21 years now. And we can probably go into a little bit more further down the conversation, but I've always been a writer and I've always loved to teach my whole family is educators. And the bottom line is, is I wanted to find a way to mix my practicing life as a physician, my faith life, and my writing and teaching life together. And so I've kind of morphed into working as a physician, but also simultaneously working with Word on Fire and writing on all things from theology to literature to history. And I can frankly tell you, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm just so happy doing what I'm doing. Well, yeah, it seems to be the combination of of your loves, I mean, the caring for people aspect when it comes to medicine that, you know, do no harm. But then in that doing no harm, you also then get to share some remarkable truth in this writing. So tell me, let's back up to 2010 when you come into the church. Was there a resistance to Catholicism as a young person, as a, as a young man? Was there an excitement about it when you joined in? Did Word on Fire, I mean, that was probably in its very early days. Did it factor right. into that conversion? Tell me that story. You know, I was raised in a very faithful family of Lutherans, and I had no reasons to have any misgivings about Catholicism. But I'll tell you, it wasn't until 1996, when I first met my wife at the end of college and started to fall in love with her and realized she's Catholic and then started to go to the Catholic church on one Sunday, Lutheran church on the other. And I had all these latent biases that I did not know where they kind of came from. And so mm. I thought I understood the Catholic church, and I totally didn't. And so literally, over the course of 14 years, I came along faster than that. It wasn't like, you know, 14 years later, the, you know, one night and boom, I changed my mind. It was an evolutionary process. I say my conversion is not like Saul being knocked off his horse. It's more like a, a painting with a thousand brushstrokes, a, a, you know, portraiture that mm -hmm. at the end you say, that's what it looks like. So it was a lot of just all the classic things about worshiping saints, worshiping Mary, what I thought was an exclusivity about communion, about why do I have to go to confession, the hierarchy of the church. There's all these things I had misgivings about. That in the end, after going to Mass and talking to priests and reading Chesterton and Belloc and Benedict XVI and Flannery O'Connor and others, I just realized at one issue after the other, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. And to steal from a C.S. Lewis, my ultimate conversion was a glorious feat. It was the hardest thing for me and the most glorious thing because I daily have to look at my wife and say, yes, dear, you were right. <laughs> and I'm so, sure she loves that. <laughs> well, she does, well, it gets me out of trouble sometimes when I say that. So I, I, I use it very strategically, but very honestly. So there was this, you were captivated in some sense by being proven wrong in a loving way. Were there people yeah. along that journey? So people handing you these books, telling you these things yeah. that brought you further in? Incredibly, yes. Incredible epiphanies along the way. Everything from a... Uh, fourth year medical student, and I was his second year resident, and I was reading this terrible historical hit piece by John Cornwell called The Hitler's Pope, and I was drinking it all in about how Pius XII was so nefarious and so on and so forth. And he very gently and kindly kind of talked to me a little bit. He was two years younger than me. He's Catholic. And at the very last day of our rotation, he had me this beaten up image books copy of Chesterton's Orthodox and said, have you ever read this? And I said, no. He said, why don't you read it? I think you'll like it. And 
my first encounter with Chesterton was, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. I read it on a beach in Mexico and I said, I don't get this. And then after reading other extraordinary works from everybody from, like I said, Merton or Flannery or Bernano or what have you, I circle back to Chesterton and I was like, this guy's a total genius. And I've read it more and more and talked about it more and more ever since. So whether it's small encounters with somebody who's in my life for six weeks and puts the right thing in my hand at the right time, to dear friends, the guy who recruited me into my clinic, his name is Mike Cummings. He's just been a, such an extraordinary friend who lunch after lunch talked about St. John's where he went to undergrad, but also his Catholic faith and so on. And then my wife's steady devotion to her faith and so on. I always say there's three things that brought me to the Catholic faith, the Holy Spirit, my wife, Carrie, and Mike Cummings. And so I will just say God found a way to put many people, many moments into my life that just steered me a little bit this way and a little bit that. And I want to say to any of the listeners out there, Brandon Vock just wrote a book uh, called Return, which is all about mm -hmm. how to approach you know, the younger generation, our children who are walking away from the faith. It's extraordinary. And I just want to say that the people out there that think, you know, faith is a fairy tale and Catholicism is just this institution that's backwards and so on and so forth. To, to, to steal from Chesterton, and, and I'm paraphrasing him, Catholicism has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And I think when I really tried the faith, I was blown away that the deeper I scratched on the surface, the more and more glorious it was. If only people in the, in the distracted, hyper-efficient modern world would continue scratching I think they'd find themselves to unbelievable veins of gold. So, so mm -hmm. I hope that answers the question. A little yeah, bit. for sure. Well, and as you're talking, I mean, you're clearly in passionate about the pursuit of how to talk about this kind of thing. I mean, that's part of your work with Word on Fire. I want to go back first, though, to your career as a physician. Was that always the plan? I mean, I feel like when I meet doctors, oftentimes they're like, oh, yeah, I always wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid because it takes so much time to right. become a doctor and then to be a good doctor. Where did that love come from? You know, when I was growing up, again, my whole family was educators. I had two older sisters who were both decided they were kind of paving the way and going to go into medicine. Both of them decided to go into education instead. So I got exposed to it from them. I didn't know. I couldn't pick my childhood doctor out of a lineup. I had no, nobody that I knew was a doctor. So I was sort of kind of flirting with something that I had no idea what I was talking about. But I read about it. I was challenged by it. The one thing I'd say about medicine that really attracted me was that every day when you wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, you're always trying to help somebody. Mm -hmm. And you're really trying to help somebody who's vulnerable and somebody who doesn't necessarily know what's going on. And so in part, you're trying to help. You're giving all day long, but you're also trying to explain and demystify and make people feel more comfortable. So that aspect was very helpful to me. It was when I got into medicine that I thought our modern world is moving in such a scientism-oriented way that we sometimes are losing the soul of medicine in the name of the technique, the efficiency, mm. the strategies, the tactics, you know, the metrics. I do some teaching for the residents and the medical students and create some talks and so on. I thought I was off my rocker a little bit, but I put together a talk called What William Shakespeare Can Teach You About the Practice of Medicine. And it was a PowerPoint and it was just delving into human nature, what Shakespeare explores about it. And the response from the students and the residents was so profound that I thought, you know, I think I'm scratching an itch for them and for me at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so I started seeing my interest in medicine as a profession, deviating a little bit, a little bit away from the sciences, although still practicing the sciences, but at the same time, approaching the philosophy that comes from literature. And I would also say the Catholic sensibility that I can borrow from and bring that into my practice of medicine as well. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating that I mean, our modern world, and that's what this entire series is about, is that intersection between faith and science. And you've, you, in your pursuit as a physician and with your work on Word on Fire and as a writer and just a thinker in general, 
have found that through line. So tell me, what can William Shakespeare teach us about medicine? What were some of those points? Well, I'll tell you, it's that the narrative that Shakespeare returns to again and again is that human beings are messy. And frankly, if you know, you and I both know, if there's one thing the Catholic Church reminds us, there, there's three things the Catholic Church reminds us, is that we're dignified, we're fallen, and we're redeemable. And I would say, if I read Shakespeare over and over again, which I think is actually informed by a quiet Catholic sensibility as well, mm-hmm. his characters are dignified, they're valuable, they're story worth telling, they're fallen, meaning that they constantly find themselves into trouble in some fashion, but they are in some fashion redeemable in one way or the other. Now, Iago in Othello is a question. He's pretty dark <laughs> all the way around. I guess what it is, is I, and I just said to some students today, sometimes the best medicine that we practice is when we step away from the algorithms and we step away from up to date, which is one of our resources, and we put away the labs and so on, and we push away from the computer, we take our glasses off and put our hands, you know, maybe we rub our eyes lean forward with our elbows on our knees, look at the patient and just talk about what we think is the right thing to do. Mm. It's sort of like, if you look at a Norman Rockwell painting, every one of those has an incredible parable, a thousand word parable right in that one image. And I'm just saying at the end of the day, Shakespeare teaches very, very well. And I would say our Catholic faith does too. Don't lose the person in the midst of the disease. Mm. Mm -hmm. If we can restore our sense of the wonder and mystery of human nature, while we're also trying to solve the problem with the patient in front of us, we're now attending to the total person. As I say to my students, without getting overly theological, you are attending the body, but you are also attending the soul because they're indivisible in this person. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, the through line there. That's why faith and science intersect beautifully. I mean, you can have a very good doctor that's not Catholic, of course, but if you have a Catholic doctor who I think understands those two things, I had my gallbladder out in December. And my primary care physician, we actually go to church together. She's a dear friend of mine. She referred me to another Catholic doctor in town who, you know, she knew would be able to do the surgery. And his first question to me was, okay, well, what works with your schedule? Because I know you've got kids and I know you've got a job. And like, he wasn't just a matter of like, okay, I can fit you in on this day. And, oh, your insurance is going to pay for it. You know, if you get it in before this date, like he actually asked me a question about what works best for your family. Right. And that was a very humanizing moment. Like I wasn't as scared anymore. I haven't gone under since I had my tonsils out when I was four. Like it was, he knew my full situation. Let's zoom out from that then. This is a good thing to teach doctors as they're preparing to go out into the field, you know, COVID times or not, to be very human with their patients. When we're having these kinds of conversations about, you know, the intersection between that understanding of the human person and our faith with science in general. What are the biggest challenges you think of convincing people that those two things do actually relate to one another? I mean, what's some of the pushback that you get in this very scientism-driven world that we have now? I think that there's a lot of people that, first of all, I think our society has become very reductionist. There's so much information out there to begin with. We can never gather all the information. So, So we've started to basically break down society into silos, and we've kind of said, you know, you're going to be expert in this and you're going to be expert in this and you're going to be expert in this. And I'm sort of not going to actually worry about whether I'm ever even fluent in that. And I'm just going to defer to your judgment. And I think the fact that there's so much information that has been increasingly siloed and there's so much of a a deference to the reductionist, hyper expertise, specialist oriented um, aspect of things that we sometimes fail to look behind the curtain of science and recognize that science has all sorts of fallibility in and of itself. And what's interesting is because, you know, Chesterton says, if you take away the supernatural from the natural, all that remains is the unnatural. It's weird because people who are ardently anti-faith, they want it all to be just science and explained by science. 
And anytime you start to delve into something that is oriented towards faith and mystery and so on, they get very uncomfortable and very defensive. Whereas those who believe, who are faithful say, oh, there's tons of room in here for science. I mean, we've got edifice of science is by monks and priests and nuns and thinkers and scientists who are Catholic and so on. It's extraordinary. It's, it's the unfolding of God's world. But it doesn't mean that we have to, you know, amputate God off of that narrative. So I think the modern world is uncomfortable with what it doesn't know. And so it defers to experts. And whenever experts start saying, here's what you need to believe, and a lot of times it's anti-religion, people just start to drink it in and say, that's the case. And that's why, you know, I remember as a non-Catholic talking to people who were Catholic and they'd read an article about the Catholic Church in the New York Times, and they were appalled and their their faith was rocked. And I'm like, I'm not even Catholic. And I know a little bit more about your faith. I'm like, that's a terrible story. And you just don't even... They're not even explaining the faith the way it is, and mm-hmm. I'm not even part of your clan. And so, so to some extent, I think there's a certain amount of unwillingness to actually wrestle with the fact that not human beings aren't expert in everything. Our opinions are not always end-all, be-all opinions, and that the mystery and the wonder that the faith has to offer, and also the very deep intelligence the faith has to offer, is really something to be reckoned with. To me, it's just it's stunning that we can't get these two camps together as they clearly are complementary to one another. So when we do get the camps together, what's your first step? Like I'm hearing this and I know plenty of people who are in that same boat. I mean, even just thinking like in terms of COVID, for example, because that's kind of the hot topic right now is follow the science. Well, the science would dictate that we should be able to gather for masks as long as we're maintaining these different precautions. And, you know, the, the science would dictate that certain vaccinations have given this information to us that they are effective. And so it's like the people, like you said, they silo them out. So how do we bring those two worlds together? What's your first pushback? In a loving and charitable way, of course. Yeah, a couple of things I'll say. And remind me to say, if I don't come back to it, C.S. Lewis is mere Christianity. Okay. There's a wonderful speech that was given by a British lord in 1924 called Law and Manners. I give this to my medical students all the time. And he basically talks about, there's a sphere of life that is all about what you have to do. You know, mm-hmm. that you have to pay your taxes. You, have, you, you can't vandalize. You need to drive on this side of the road. There's a sphere of life with it, which is what you want to do. You know, where are you going to live? How are you going to raise your kids within reason? The kind of job you're going to have, all this kind of stuff. And in the middle is manners, is mores, is civility. And what he says is it's called obedience to the unenforceable. The issue you run into is the more people start kind of beating their chest about this is my right and that's my right and this is my right, which is not, there are some rights you need to fight for. There's no question about it. But the more we start kind of fighting for these rights and so on and so forth, the more you get a pushback, well, we're going to prevent that. We're going to, the law gets bigger that we're going to prevent that. We're going to cause you to do this, blah, 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 blah. What gets squeezed out in the middle is civility, is manners, is mores. And the long and the short is the spheres are, as I've just said, what do you want to do? What do you have to do? And what ought you to do? Mm-hmm. And everybody knows what I'm talking about when you say there's something you ought to do. One of my residents, when I was talking about this, he says, and he's Danish and he says, my mother used to say this, and he'd say this long sentence or short sentence in Danish. And I say, I have no idea what that means. What does it mean? <laughs> and he says, whenever I would have to write a thank you note for a gift or go to my neighbor's house and help them carry something in because they're older and they, their kids aren't home or whatever, and I would groan about it, my mother would say, blah, 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 this Danish saying. And I said, what does that mean? She says, it is just what is done. Mm. It is just what is done, meaning it's what you do. And he understood it. And you and I understand what that means. This vague notion that there is a duty, okay? So part of me, when it comes to bridging the gap between those people who they are opposed religion or it's all science or whatever, and those who are on the opposite camp, sometimes we have to come back to that middle ground of the sense, the sense, without even getting any, any religious underpinnings, the sense of doing something that is right 
and the sense that doing something else that is wrong. And I know there's all sorts of arguments mm-hmm. about, well, this is right and that's right and so on. But I think we all know that if someone's walking into a, a mall and they've got tons of boxes in their arms and you're there and you can grab the door, you grab the door for them. Not mm-hmm. many people are going to say, I disagree with that. That's wrong. It's just something that we say, it's what you do. And sometimes I think if we start at an area of common human experience, and it's kind of golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's a great place to start. I think sometimes the arguments are started in the deep depths of orthodoxy, which is a great place to arrive. But sometimes like in mere Christianity, you just got to start with some fundamental first principle definitions of, do we truly believe that there's a right or a wrong? Mm -hmm. And And I'll say this one last thing. The argument of moral relativism, well, there is no right, there, there is no wrong. The person that says that, I want to drive with them in rush hour traffic. I want to see how they react <laughs> when someone cuts them off. Because if they are as cool as a cucumber and are saying, well, that person almost hit us. Well, this person kind of gave me the bird as they went by. Well, this, well, that. But I'm never upset because no one's wrong. I've never met a person like that yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's you're saying it in a very clear way. I'm still curious about... So I'll zoom back to, I was a freshman theology teacher for years, and I'd have the occasional student who would come in with that very scientific mindedness of the creation story, for example, that can't possibly be real. Oh, well, it's not seven literal days, you know, and and explain to them the actual church teaching. I had a student my first year teaching uh, who brought in Christopher Hitchens books and Richard Dawkins books and would sit in the front row and just kind of, you know, make parrot the arguments that he was clearly reading from these two atheist thinkers. And it eventually got to a point where my attitude was not good and his attitude wasn't good. He ended up leaving the school for other reasons entirely. But I always go back to, I could have handled that better. Like I could have found a way to explain what you just explained about how the two things can live together. So what's your advice maybe, how do you find yourself doing it to have those hard conversations as a Catholic with that charitable arm that we're called to have, but then also in a very clear and cogent way, like, well, this is the truth and you can choose to believe it or not. And, you know, we'll see who's right at the end of time kind of thing. What, how do you bridge that gap? I love your questions, generous questions to ask, which are great. I'll just tell you, um, I have a, uh, had a conversation with a relative who was an atheist younger than me and bright guy and just same thing, reading Hitchens and Dawkins and Sam Harris and all those kind of things and was quoting these snippets. And, and they were kind of almost like these little pot shots as if, you know, I need to say this thing about maybe slavery from Leviticus or something like that. And that's, you know, that just your whole house of cards falls, you know, and so on and so forth. And it's sort of like the first thing I think is we're not doing this alone. If we believe in the God that we believe in, we should be praying to God to ask, just like Jesus said to Peter and the disciples, you know, the Holy Spirit will come through you. Don't worry about what you're going to say. And so, I mean, we're always planning. We want to be strategic appropriately, but God has a hand in this and God has a hand in the life of the other person. So I think we have the advantage of invoking the most powerful force in the entire universe to work on our behalf and to work on their behalf. So I think that's the first part of it. The second thing is, is that Bishop Barron says this one thing, and I think others have said in the past, whenever somebody posts the caricature God, we can agree with them on that. We can agree that, yes, I don't believe in that God either. I, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, that's, that is a funny, funny, ridiculous notion of a deity who looks and acts that way because that's not the God I worship either. So we're, we're in agreement. But one, one of the things I would say, and it comes down to let's, we can always delve into specifics, but we always have to contextualize specifics. And every time you're contextualizing specifics, you got to know what you're talking about. So you as a theology teacher are going to be better versed on some of the very arcane nuances in Old Testament scripture that somebody would pull out of Hitchens and give an argument from that standpoint. Most people don't have that degree of fluency. So mm-hmm. what I might say, what I might reason, and this is what I did with my 
this relative of mine, we had a conversation about this. I think you talk about general points, that, points of commonality where you can start to say, okay, wait a second, this makes sense. This is one of the things I said. I said, I want to ask you this. Do you believe that you, and I'll just say Bob, that you, Bob, are a valuable person? I mean, and, and he started laughing. Like, no, seriously, do you, do you think you, you have, your life is valuable, you have an in, inherent worth and are des- deserving of respect? Well, yes, I do. Okay, good. Secondly, do you believe that you have a calling that, that maybe you don't know exactly what it is, but there's a path you're on, there's a purpose you're searching for, there's a directionality to your life. Day in and day out, it's a matter of finding that and following it. Well, y- y- yes, I do. Okay, thirdly, do you believe that you've ever suffered? Have you suffered? Do you anticipate you will suffer in some form or the other for reasons you can understand, reasons are that are ineffable, you don't understand? Yes, I do. And finally, have you ever been visited with grace? Have you ever had somebody do something for you or something happen to you that you might say, that was a fortunate coincidence, that was good karma, that was fate in a good way, whatever the case may be, or I don't know where that happened, but thank you, whoever might be saying that. Have you ever experienced that? Or do you anticipate you could? Yes. And I said, so you believe in the notion of dignity, calling, suffering, and grace? And he says, yes, I do. I said, that's the narrative of every figure in the Bible, every one of them, mm-hmm. every single one of them. And that's the narrative of you. And that's the narrative of me. And that, frankly, is to my way of thinking, in addition to the notion of we are dignified, we're fallible, we're redeemable, that is the narrative that God is involved in through all of our lives. And he walks with us through those things. And so I just, and and by the way, I'll also say, it's also the narrative you're going to see in a Harry Potter movie, in a Star Mm -hmm. Wars movie. And it's like, what is it about that narrative that we, we keep returning to again and again? It's because it's true. It is just the facts. All I can say is that with that kind of a narrative and that narrative carried out in Peter and Mary and Paul and all the prophets and all this, the one thing I'll kind of say to you is this is no fairy tale. This is an extraordinary story that finds itself repeating over and over and over and over and over again. And if I see echoes of that in my own life, just as well as I see examples of that in the Bible, what is it about this that if it's not eerie, it's got to be somewhat true. And mm-hmm. to start exploring what that truth is. If, if, does that sort of make sense? It does. Yeah. Well, it's appealing to the the lowest common denominator is that we mm-hmm. can all see a hero's journey within our own lives, which is ultimately a hero's journey rooted in, it's going to sound cheesy to say this, our hero, the savior, right? Like there's gospel truth that I can read into my own life, that it's his story and it's my story. Todd, we could keep going. And I know you have written extensively about this. Where can we learn more about you, follow you, read your thoughts about this and more? So if you go to Word on Fire and just look up my name, Todd, T-O-D, Warner, W-O-R-N-E-R, you can see a whole archive of my blogs. I've written and still write for Alatea. But also, please go to the Word on Fire Institute, join it. Bishop Barron, all the fellows in the Word on Fire Institute, the writers, the thinkers, the artists, everybody in that in this group, which I've been working for, is extraordinary and just trying to move the intellectual and mystical richness of the Catholic faith forward. And so Evangelization Culture is the journal I'm the editor of. And it's an honor and a pleasure to be a part of it. So we hope that you can come and join us there. Yeah, the latest issue is beautiful. Claire Lococo is a good friend of mine. So I, uh, oh, I'm a big fan. Like, Claire's oh, wonderful. Claire's uh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, Todd, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Katie, thanks again. Take care now. When we talk about dialogue and discussion, one of two things can happen. And I think Dr. Werner really pointed out that It's about approaching another individual with a heart and a mind open to listening and a heart and a mind open to teaching and finding a a, a through path between those two things. If we can each acknowledge, and Dr. Werner spoke about this very beautifully, if we can each acknowledge the dignity present within one another, 
and the fruit and the value that can come out of this conversation, well, then really beautiful things can happen and a lot of learning can take place. Hopefully we've done that throughout this entire Ave Explorers series, very much approaching this topic with a sense of wonder and awe at what God has done, a sense of uh, being impressed by what science has accomplished, and trying to find a place where faith and science both live together in our heart and in our mind in pursuit of the truth. You can find all of the content that we've created over at AveMariaPress.com. Up at the top, there's a big banner that says Faith and Science, Ave Explores Faith and Science. Click on that. It'll bring you to articles. It'll bring you to other podcasts. It'll bring you to our Facebook Live conversations. Our series is starting to wrap up this week. We have one more episode of the podcast uh, with a a great guest, a young woman who converted from atheism to Catholicism, and it's a beautiful story of, of really digging into the truth. I think you'll really enjoy it. We'd, of course, also be grateful for a rating and a review. Sharing this podcast with other people is the only way that it grows, is the only way that more folks can find all of the great things that we have created through Ave Explorers. We have tons of series on everything from social justice, this series, faith and science, Catholic family life, the saints, you name it, we've talked about it. And we're going to keep that up and we'll keep going. So we hope you check it all out over at AveMariaPress.com. We'll see you later this week. We hope you subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.